السلام عليك زين الأنبياء السلام عليك الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم تسليم على سيدنا ومولانا محمدا وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم أجمعين سبحانك لا إلمننا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم so alhamdulillah, we have reached the last session and we hope to have covered the essential parts of Book 1, the Book on Knowledge of Hujjat al-Islam, Imam al-Ghazali's classic work, Din. And this is a book that we should, again, constantly go back to time and time again. And it is highly advisable that we acquire the translations of the Ihya if we need translation and more and more they are available many have been printed by the Islamic Text Society <coughs> some by Fans Vatai, some by other publishers and a good percentage of the 40 books have uh, been rendered into English and some translations are better than other are that better than others but also there are um, more than one uh, abridgments of the Ihya uh, that are also good to have. And really, <coughs> any book that comes out that Avi Imam Ghazadi is good to have on your shelf. Uh, the book that was translated by Mukhtar Holland, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> The Path of the Worshippers is definitely a book that you want to have. The Beginning of Guidance is definitely a book that you want to have. Ayyuhad Walid, Dear Beloved Son, is definitely a book that you want to have. Uh, and there's other translations as well. And these are excellent books to have on the shelf and to continuously read. Just as the books of Imam Abdullah bin Alawid Haddad are the books that you want to have on your shelf. And um, it's very important to invest in knowledge. <coughs> and books remain. And hopefully they don't stay on the shelf, but uh, only that they will also... Uh, hopefully they'll be read uh, but the fact that at least if they're on the shelf and they're closer and if better yet you can leave one of them next to your nightstand or uh, next to your uh, side table of your recliner chair that you like to sit in or whatever um, and um, then just pick it up from time to time and to read and then once you become addicted to these books which is what it's a good addiction this is one of the good addictions. You become addicted to these books and you can't put them down. And um, that's really what we want. And that's a really good sign that you just have what's called shagaf, this overwhelming, overwhelmingly strong desire and love to read these works time and time again. So at the very end of Kitab al-In, and this is chapter 6 of the work, and there's only one other chapter after this where Imam Ghazali talks about the aql and the intellect, its merit and its divisions. And we're not going to get to that, And uh, but what was important about that chapter was what was uh, hinted at in the introductory session, which is of all the different um, divisions of the intellect, and he divides them into four. And as you will see that um, different people would emphasize 
different divisions. He says, ultimately, the highest division of the intellect is to use the intellect to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to avoid what is wrong and to do what is right. And this is the reality of the intellect. This is the intellect that is actually in the heart. You have the intellect that we share with that other human beings that aren't even Muslim, that someone could have a higher IQ than someone else. There are different definitions of the intellect, but the highest definition of the intellect is to use it to do what is most pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in every single moment. And then the knowledge that you need for that is knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His names and His attributes and the definition of beneficial knowledge that we've been called to. Oh, and that reminds me, I said I was going to start by quoting the... I'll actually end with that, so remind me to do that, the Imam Haddad's definition of the, uh, beneficial knowledge. So, let's look at what he says here now about the bayan alamat ulama al-akhirah. He lists 12 signs that are signs of the scholars of the hereafter. And so he's juxtaposing these great scholars whom we should be following to the ulama al-dunya, the scholars of the world. Or you could call them ulama al-su, the evil scholars. People who that might have knowledge, might be able to deliver a sermon, might be able to that masterfully delve into the art of debate, might be able to dupe people with his knowledge. However, that they are calling to Allah and His Messenger with his tongue, but they are calling to its opposite with their heart. And these people exist. And we have to be wary of them. And there are always charlatans and everything. And there's always people that don't truly represent what it is that they're calling to. And this is part of life. And alhamdulillah that we have criterion whereby which we can understand that who's who. So he says here, we have mentioned previously in relation to the merit of knowledge and the scholars uh, that much about the merit of knowledge and scholars. And he said that as for the ulama asu, the evil scholars, there are also many narrations that indicate the severity of their state and how they are actually the most intensely people punished on the Day of Judgment. So this is serious. And this shows you how serious we should take that here. When you're in a position of responsibility, especially if you're speaking in the name of the religion, La ilaha illallah. It is a trust. And it's one of the worst things you can possibly do is to abuse that trust. And for those that have spent time talking to people that have been burnt by religious people, that have been abused by religious people, it's hard for them. It's hard for them to come back. It's hard for them to regain trust once that trust is broken. And so when you see the detriment in this world, let alone in the next world, then it makes sense that there's such a severe punishment. Okay. And so he said, then so from the most important of matters then is to mention the signs that will distinguish between the scholars of the world, the ulama dunya and the scholars of the hereafter. And then he says, we mean by the scholars of the world, 
the evil scholars whose intention in relation to knowledge is to only enjoy the things of this world and to seek it and use it to have status and a high spot in people's hearts. And so this is actually a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where it says, In nas Indeed, the most intensely punished of people on the day of judgment is a scholar whom Allah did not benefit with his knowledge. And when we hear that, we should have a deep sense of trepidation in our heart. Not that we don't ever learn. Oh, okay, I'm not going to go learn now. I'll let that for this. No, that's not what it means. No, we heard the merit of knowledge, but we balanced that out, hoping for the reward of that, but curbing the tendencies of the nafs that when you have this precious inheritance of the prophets, which Ustad Amjad beautifully demonstrated why it's so precious, don't soil it with seeking the things of this world. It's one of the worst things that you can do. You're putting something in its improper place. And the Prophet ﷺ said, In the end of time, there will be ignorant worshippers and corrupt scholars. So the closer and closer that we get to the end of time, and we are living in the end of time, when is actually the end of time, Allah knows best. But we are living in the end of time because our Prophet said, I was sent an hour like these two fingers, and he put them closely together. So we know we're living in the end of time, and then when it actually is going to happen, we don't know. That knowledge is solely with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But this is something that you see. People who are worshipping Allah yet are ignorant, and scholars who are corrupt, corrupt here meaning they're not upright. They don't have the ability to maintain their integrity. And again, just think about history. Think about one of the main causes of the Protestant Reformation. And even this is, relates to religion in general and people that how they're supposed to be when they're really claiming to be religious. These things are very serious. And then the Prophet said, Do not learn knowledge in order to boast about the knowledge that you have amongst the scholars. Or to argue with the ignorant. Or to turn people's that faces towards you literally to gain their attention. Whoever does this will be in the fire. And then our Prophet said, that there are that people that I'm more fearful for, i.e. that they're going to have a harmful impact upon you, than the Dajjal, than the Antichrist, which is the greatest fitna of all. Faqir wa madak. And then they asked, who are these people, O Messenger of Allah? Qal, min al From the Imams who lead people astray. And then another hadith, Man izdad ilman wa lam yazdad hudan lam yazdad min Allah illa bu'dan 
Whoever increases in knowledge but doesn't increase in guidance, they will only increase in distance from Allah. So what we really want when we seek knowledge is hidayah, guidance. Guidance has a beginning, but it has no end. There's no limit to how we can be guided. And this word is important. What do we say about the Khulafa al-Rashidin, the rightly guided caliphs? We believe that they were rightly guided. So guidance has a beginning, but it has no end. And the proof of the importance of guidance is it comes right in the Fatiha. The very first supplication of the Quran. Guide us to the straight path. Guide us. And so guidance has a beginning. And there's no limit to how well guided we might be. And then let's look at a, statement, a couple other statements, uh, or at least one other statement of uh, Sayyidina Umar bin Khattab, who was very wise, of course. He said, that in the akhwaf ma akhaf ala hadir umma and munafiq al alim. The person that I fear most for in this umma, in this community, is the hypocrite who is extremely knowledgeable. And they ask, like, how could that a hypocrite be extremely knowledgeable? And then Sayyidina Umar said, Alim al lisan jahil al galb al amal. Is that he has a lot of knowledge which he can articulate on his tongue, but he's ignorant at the level of heart and he doesn't put his knowledge into practice. And this is a, this is a danger. And we've been talking for the most part within the realm of the deen of Islam, but start applying these standards to what we know about the state of knowledge just in general. The state of knowledge now, the main institution where people learn it is the university. And we have to critique these things. We shouldn't be all, here he goes again, critiquing the university. No, we have to critique these things. It's essential. It's essential that in the West they're critiquing these things. There's so many books about this. And that, that, that you know, scathing critiques of the state of knowledge in the modern university. And this is within their own civilization that is not even necessarily Muslims writing these works because they're recognizing all of these tendencies that are happening, the corporatization of knowledge and all these different things. And, um, you know, the, the loss of true meaning and so forth. Anyhow, that just think about when you go to get a postgraduate degree, you know, they don't care what you believe in. They don't care what you do. You could be the worst of people. It doesn't, it's, not a criteria, it's not part of the criterion to graduate. And all you have to do is just to walk by a college campus to see the future of the world. And it's like, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. Like, that's the future, right? This is the way people are talking. This is the way people are dressing. This is the way that people are acting. And it's scary. Because don't think that, oh, they're just going to magically turn into these wonderful people when they get into corporate America. No, it's going to get worse, right? Because you're not grounded in anything, and you're just going to get blown in whatever direction that the wind blows. Next current, here it goes this way. Now, here it goes this way. And this is even happening to our people, though, which is scary. It's even happening to Muslims. That's why we have to be grounded in knowledge. 
Allah speaks of those firmly grounded in knowledge. So that's a whole other topic to understand how we understand knowledge and then compare it to the modern state of knowledge, what consider people consider to be knowledge. And this is why we keep reiterating the importance of learning, of learning this deen. And again, once you develop the shahwa, the desire of learning, oh, it's like the man who always used to be around Sayyidina Umar Khattab, and he was basically asked, like, did you, why did you, why did you like, migrate? Is it for Sayyidina Umar or who is it for? Right? Or did you do it for the sake of Allah Ta'ala? And so Sayyidina Umar taught him the, how to worship Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala, and all of a sudden he never saw the man. And one day he sees him, he says, you know, ask about him, where has he been? And he said, I found the Lord of Umar better than Umar. <laughs> Once you taste the sweetness of learning, khalas. You know, who cares about a video game or any series that you can watch on Netflix or right, any restaurant that you can indulge in? And once you learn, taste the sweetness of knowledge, this is what you'll want to do. This is what you want to spend your time that doing is acquiring more and more knowledge. And then you'll have to reach a point where you have to tame yourself because you'll have to realize, like, no. I'm not seeking this knowledge for the sake of seeking that knowledge. I have to do it out of my ubudiyah to Allah, out of my servitude to Him. Because you realize, oh no, some people actually have rights upon me. <clears throat> you realize, oh, there's other things that I actually have to do. And then it's a different struggle at that point. Khair, inshallah. So, Imam al-Ghazali mentions 12 signs of the scholars of the hereafter. And you have them there on your outline. Want to go, go through uh, each of these, commenting briefly on them. <coughs> the first is, <laughs> He does not seek this world by his religious learning. He does not seek this world by his religious learning. And this is simply a no-no. And one of the quickest ways to spoil the blessing of knowledge. And so when I hear about some of the tendencies in the community and people that doing fundraisers and getting a percentage of the total amount that they fundraise and that people really that making quite a bit of money, charging very large, you know, having very large honorariums, for speaking engagements and a lot of different, you know, a lot of red tape and requirements. That's very strange. On the other hand, yes, it was a problem at one point where people expect the imam to drive a beat up old car that breaks down all the time and that to live poor. We're not saying that either, of course. Take good care of your imams. So we're not saying that. But uh, for it to go in the other extreme, where that it becomes like the, the content that you're putting out as a product. And you know, because you spend so much time looking at um, that, uh, you know, the uh, metrics of what people like to hear and where people are tuning in. And so you plan a tour in a particular area and that you find out what it is that they want to hear and talk about and that type of thing. And to a certain degree, wanting to speak to people's issues is good. But <clears throat> you have to be very careful because it's a slippery slope. 
and which one of us is strong enough when all of a sudden a lot of money starts rolling in as well as popularity and fame can maintain our principles can maintain our principles this is not an easy thing to do it's a fitna a serious fitna and if that becomes our criterion for the venues that we select and agree to going to and then oh, okay now the honorarium is only three hundred dollars i'm not going there that's a serious problem we should go where there's a need now to accept an honorarium and really my personal opinion on them my advice to my brothers who are in this field is don't ever ask and don't stipulate don't ask and don't stipulate if someone gives you something then khalas, there was no istishraf and nafs. You didn't desire it. And then if you have a need for it, like when the Prophet gave Sayyidina Omar wealth, that Sayyidina Omar didn't want it. And then the Prophet said, any money that comes to you and you don't desire it, he said, take it. If you have a need for it, use it. Otherwise, give it away. Use that principle. Don't ever ask about an honorarium. How, how can we maintain sincerity with Allah if you're asking about an honorarium? Like our teachers, and I've repeat, said this before, but it it's have never once in their life accepted an honorarium. That is mustahil, impossible, impossible, impossible for them to accept an honorarium. Yani never even crossed their mind to charge someone for like to convey the message. They want to find anyone that they can to help teach and help save and be a means for their eternal felicity. So we have to be very careful with these things. And we do have challenges, I know. People might be thinking, oh, what about the institution, brother? What about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? I'm not saying that we don't build institutions, and but we have to find good ways of doing them. And it's a challenge in a place like the United States of America that runs a certain way. And, um, but we got to be very careful because once you open that door, it will ruin you and it will ruin your message. And even if you're saying things that are beautiful, it won't hit people's hearts. It'll be right at the surface level. And you might get yourself in big trouble. This is the number one thing. If you want to make money, make money. There's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with making money. But just not off of the dean. Not off of the dean. When it comes to the dean, we should be, I wish we could do, make these programs free. If we could get people to sponsor the food and sponsor some of the other costs, I wish we could do them for free. And we try, we try to the extent possible in our programs to only charge what is needed to cover costs. We try not to make money off our programs. Sometimes we do, sometimes we're in the red. Uh, and over the year it kind of balances out and we do have a lot of costs because people do have families that you have to take care of and so forth. But we can't look with that mentality that, oh, let's put on these programs because this is generating revenue, right? Let's do programs at this time because, oh yeah, People are going to be especially giving, right, during the last month in the week of Ramadan or whatever. That's just nonsense. That's nonsense, and it will pollute the message. And it is entirely antithetical to what Imam al-Ghazali is saying throughout the Ahil al-Madin. It's antithetical to the concept of Imtariq al-Akhirah. And there's no way we're going to be successful here in America if this is our approach. No possible way. Because there's something about our people is that they can sniff out hypocrisy. They know when it's real and authentic, and they know that when it's just a mirage, and it's just a name, 
No, we need substance. And um, so this is the very first one, and this is big. And this is not just a problem in Imam Ghazali's time. This is a problem in religious history. And this is still a problem in our day and age, uh, in, in, our, in our day and age. Tamam. So he said, be, why is this the case? Because he said, the least degree of the scholar is to recognize the haqara to dunya, the lowliness of the world, and wakudurata, and it's that how, that it's turpidity, that how, what a dark place it really is, and recognize the greatness of the hereafter, and its permanence, and how pure its bliss is, and the greatness of its dominion, and that this world and the hereafter are diametrically opposed to each other. They're mutadadatan. <coughs> they're opposites. <coughs> and he said they're like two sides of the scale. The more that you weigh on one side of the scale, that the more that this one goes up. The more this one goes down, the more this one goes up. He said that it's like the east and the west. The closer that you get to one necessarily, the further that you are from the other. This is the nature of this world and the next world. And again, when you say this, Imam Ghazali attacks the dunya. And the, but what he's referring to is the lower nature of the dunya. And then people always say, well, don't forget your portion of the dunya. Who's forgetting their portion of the dunya? That's not our problem is to forget the portion of the dunya. Our problem is different. Our problem is too much dunya. We need to have more akhirah. And again, the movement-oriented type mentality struggles with some of these realities of tasawwuf because that they think one of the main reasons the Muslims are in the condition is because we don't have the technology of the West. Right? Who wants the technology of the West in many ways? Right? We did not create the societies and the philosophies that led to the technology of the West, which is destroying the world, incidentally. Human beings have lived here for thousands and thousands of years, but how much destruction have we done from the time of the Industrial Revolution until now? How much destruction are we doing from the time of the Technological Revolution until now? And it's not going to stop, even if they try to limit it, it's not going to stop. They're going to destroy the world eventually. And how the world's going to end eventually, Allah knows best. But the point here is, we can't be so simplistic. I'm not saying that we don't have technology either. It's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, is that we have a way about ourselves. One of the greatest sunnahs of all of the Messenger of Allah is, his, is the preference of the hereafter over this world. Never did the Prophet blink, except that he thought it would be the last time he ever blinked. Never did he chew a morsel of food, except that he thought that it would be the last time that he would chew. He was ever aware of his mortality and that he might return to Allah in any moment. And it's because he was so detached from this world and lived in the world but was not of the world was why he was able to bring about so much change. You can't really bring about transformation in the world, true transformation, unless you're detached from the world. And to the degree that you and I are detached from the world is to the degree that if we combine that with knowledge and a sincere intention that we will help people truly transform which is the essence of what this whole affair is about coming to know Allah and helping other people do the same thing this is the essence of the whole affair this is why we're here ilm and amal this is why the heavens and the earth were created ilm and amal and um, 
So we, this is the very least degree of us scholars that we realize this. So he says, whoever knows this, and everybody who has knowledge does know this, but do they really know it? And then they don't prefer the hereafter over the dunya. This person is, he says, the asir shaitan. Now he's, Imam Ghazali doesn't let you go. And his words are powerful and strong. But instead of like, oh, wow, that's, oh, that's pretty harsh. No, we're supposed to be harsh on ourselves. He's the asir of shaitan. He's the prisoner of Satan. He will be destroyed by his desire. And then perdition, wretchedness will overcome him. And then look, Imam al-Hasan al-Basri. He says, That the punishment for scholars of this world is that their hearts die. What is... What is the essence of the death of the heart? Seeking the world with acts that are supposed to be done for the hereafter. That one of the great Imams, Yahya bin Mu'ad al-Razi said, Is that the splendor of knowledge and wisdom vanish only when one seeks them for the sake of this world. And if you have seen people like this, they are like kings, even though that they be extremely poor. Marabat al-Hajj was like this. He was like a king. He had so much haiba, you could not look him in the eye. If you looked up, you'd have to look down. You could not look him in the eye. Allah gave him, and he's not sitting there like, Oh, hey, I want people to be in awe of me. No, he's with Allah. And Allah gives them this haiba. And you come into their presence. And when you come into their presence as well, as people that can read your heart. And that speak to your khawatir. Like speak to your thoughts. If that's ever happened to anyone, it's intense. And you know they're speaking directly to you. Because something just happened. You come into their presence and boom. And the fact that this could happen... We know the story of Sayyidina Muthman bin Affan when one of the Sahaba came into his presence and he had just looked at something impermissible on his way and Sayyidina Uthman said, is someone going to come into my presence and the trace of fornication is on their eyes? And he says, is this wahi after Rasulullah? Is this revelation after the Messenger of Allah? And Sayyidina Uthman said, no. This is that the firasa of a believer, the inner sight of a believer. That, as our Prophet said, that be wary of the inner side of the believer because he sees with the light of Allah. These are, these are the true kings. And they don't want the things of this world. Sheikh Hamza used to mention this about Marabat al-Hajj. Many of the Mauritanians, because of the difficulties, economic difficulties they are going through, went to different places to earn an income to provide for their families, which is not a bad thing. But Marabat al-Hajj, he said, stayed in the middle of the desert and the wealth of all of those who went to these different places eventually was put, much of it, in the service of Marabat al-Hash. And he didn't even want it. He didn't even want it. And um, you know, this is someone who, that when he was studying, and every student would have a cow, because that was one of their staple, that was they needed the cow to eat. They would drink milk in the morning and the evening, because there was only food, like very minimal amounts of food that they would eat from time to time.
and he wanted to that sell his cow, uh, which was extremely valuable in, in that setting, for the Sharh al-Hattab, one of the great longer commentaries on Mukhtasar al-Khalil and the Maliki school. And this is the way these people are. And Allah gives them this Haiba as a result of their sincerity with Him subhanahu wa ta'ala. So think about now what happens when people sell this knowledge for the things of this world. Allah removes that from the hearts of people in relation to them. And they're just not respected. And this is twofold. Part of this is the fault of those people of knowledge that are like that. And the other aspect is it still doesn't give people the right to look at people of knowledge like that. But you can see the fitna then uh, as a result what happens. And then, what, and, and then in the end, that who wants to seek sacred knowledge? And as long as that in Muslim countries that it's only the people that can't get into any of the other programs seek knowledge, then how are we going to ever change as an ummah? If this is how sacred knowledge is looked at, like, oh, only the, the, the dumb people who can't get into that, you know, the kulliyat al-tib or the kulliyat al-handasa, that they're the ones that, if, as long as this is the, our perspective, this is a problem. We should be putting our best intellects into these fields and to serve for the sake of Allah Ta'ala. And, you know, it, it, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. And that, yes, that we need professionals, of course, but it doesn't make sense because then people complain, on the other hand, about the state of the scholars and about the state of the leadership and so forth. Well, if we would have taken a little bit more seriously and that we would have that taken their religious education even a, as a fraction as serious as we take their secular education, then you would be amazed at what would happen. You'd be amazed at what would happen. And if you, if you think about you know, the efforts that we're doing, how many Muslims go to the university every year nationwide? Like what would you estimate? I don't even know. Right? If, we're, if we're, you know, a lot, thousands and thousands, I wouldn't even know. Like how many Muslims are in, if you add the four years of undergrad and then some type of postgraduate study, how many Muslims are in school right now? An enormous percentage. Like an enormous number. You know, how many hundreds of, I don't know what it would be. And if you think about that, how many are studying at a place where they're actually learning something that, or have studied or would study in a place where they're learning deen? How many students does Zaytuna College have? Right. What percentage of the students right, do they have in relation to those that are studying? Or how many are, have studied in one of the other seminaries that we have in the United States or something like that? Right, a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the whatever, however many hundred thousand, if it is in the hundred thousands, of people that are studying in the university. So, do you see the mentality? So, imagine if just 10%, so let, let's just put a number out. I mean, how many Muslims, let's just say there's 8 to 10 million Muslims in America, and let's just say that in school right now there's 300,000, let's just estimate. Okay, so let's just say that 10% of them wanted to take their religious studies seriously. 
So you had 30,000 students now that wanted to learn. Some might say, well, we don't have the resources. We don't have, where are we going to send them all? Don't, don't think of it backwards. If it was a priority to you, you're investing how much money into the secular schools? If you have 30,000 students and you know you need a place for them and you need schools for them, well, actually, maybe if you made it a priority, then you'd actually take the steps to do what needed to be done to train them. 30,000. And then that imagine, and that's only 10% we're estimating here. So do you see the way this works? If we, if we would make it a priority, you would see wonders. You would see wonders. And what's preventing us from having someone who's a hafiz of the Qur'an, who's a scholar grounded in their deen, and also having a profession? They could be a doctor or whatever else they want to be. Nothing's preventing that. And we should study other types of knowledge. Now, when I'm going to change my perspective, when it, but for the right reasons and after having been grounded in our deen, and contribute. And contribute uniquely and don't get caught up in the web that pulls so many people in. And that eventually that takes all of their good intentions and, and, and intentions and makes it ultimately a service for that secular materialism. No, make a real lasting contribution based upon our own principles. If we make it a priority, amazing things would happen. But if we don't, what do you expect? Things are simply not going to change. So, the second one that he says here is, He does not act contrary to what he says. Practicing what one preaches. And Allah Ta'ala says, أَتَأْمُنُونَ النَّاسَ بِالْبِرِّ Do you call people to righteousness and forget your own selves? And again, there is a tashdeed, shadeed. There is a grave warning from the Prophet ﷺ about this. And on the night of Isra wa Mi'raj, our Prophet himself said, That I passed by a people whose that lips were being cut with scissors of fire. The Prophet said, Who are you? And they said, We used to tell people to do good, but we didn't do it. And we would forbid people from evil and we would do it. And so again, this all of us should be worried about this. We all are worried about this. We all should be worried about this. And we have to be very careful that when we have children and our children are acting like us, the way that we taught them, and then we get mad at them. We should be getting mad at ourselves, not them. Because oftentimes we taught them that behavior. And so this is the next one. He does not act contrary to what he says. And then one of the scholars said, لَيْسَ فِي الْقِيَامِةِ أَشَدْ حَسْرَةٍ مَنْ رَجُلٍ عَلَّمَ النَّاسِ عِلْمًا فَعَمِلُوا بِهِ وَلَمْ يَعْمَلُهُ بِهِ فَفَازُوا بِسَبِي وَهَلَكَهُ of all people on the Day of Judgment that will have remorse, no one will be more remorseful than a man who taught people knowledge and they put it into practice, but he did not. And they attained felicity by means of him 
but he was destroyed. Malik Medinar said, In the Adam with the Lam Yamad Belmi, Zellat Mo'idatu and in Kuru Kamayazil al Katru and his Safa. That is the scholar, if he does not put his knowledge into practice, his admonition, his words of wisdom will slip from the heart the way that water slips off of a, of a stone, a soft uh, stone, and so forth and so on. So putting knowledge into practice, this is one of the main signs of the scholars of the hereafter. Do they put their knowledge into practice? And that we've heard stories of our teachers, the father of Sayyid Habib Omar, he reached the chapter of Siwak, so the, uh, the tooth stick. And the student was about to read. And so he said, Babu Siwak, and he's like reading with him. He says, the chapter on the Siwak. And he said, wait a second, do you have a Siwak in your pocket? And he said, and he didn't have it that day. He said, okay, someone else read. And he had another student read because that student didn't have his Siwak with him. The purpose of reading is not just, oh, this is great, look at all the benefits of siwak. So that you actually use the siwak. The purpose of going through this is not so, oh, wow, Imam al-Zadi is amazing. He is amazing. But what's our portion of this? And that to what sense, are, to what degree are we dedicated to putting it into practice? <clears throat> Number three, he is devoted to knowledge beneficial in the next world knowledge beneficial in the akhirah that encourages him to be in a state of obedience of Allah and he avoids knowledge that is not very beneficial and that when it comes in when it relates to that knowledge that there's a lot of disputation in qil and qal and a lot of hearsay and so he says that that the likeness of someone who turns away from what he calls ilm al-a'mal, knowledge that you can put into practice. bil-jidal and preoccupies himself with debate and disputation, disputation is like a man who is sick and has all different types of sicknesses. And he comes across a very skilled doctor. And in a very short period of time, he actually might die. And so he starts asking the doctor, about all of the special properties of the various types of remedies and all of the various types of cures and some of the subtleties of medicine. And he forgets to ask him about what he needs himself to become cured. And again, we've got to be careful of infotainment. And it's fine to add little things here and there and quoting from this and that and some, you know, ajayat, that's fine. But it's not the asal, it's not the foundation of the discourse. It's the, not the foundation of the discourse. No. And actually, now's a good point, because this is about beneficial knowledge. We'll just mention Imam Haddad's uh, definition of it, which is very helpful. And this is taken from the Book of Assistance, and which is definitely a book uh, that we should all um, have and to read regularly and it's one of the first books that we can read and it's a book that uh, you can even read on your own and then ask uh, a qualified teacher uh, if there's something that you don't understand so for time's sake I'll just read it in English you should have a weird something that you do regularly 
of reading useful knowledge, which is that which increases your knowledge of the essence of Allah, His attributes, acts, and blessings, makes you aware of His commands and prohibitions, leads you to renounce the things of this world and wish only for the hereafter, and brings your faults, the defects in your acts, and the plots of your enemy to your notice. This knowledge is present in the Quran, the book, the Sunnah, and the writers, the writings of the leaders, the great Imams. It was collected by Imam Ghazali in his highly valuable books. Those who have religious per this is always a difficult word for me to pronounce uh, perspicacity, any religious insight are well steeped in knowledge and have complete certitude, have great esteem for his books. If you wish to travel the path and arrive at the levels of realization, you must make it a habit to read them, i.e. the books of Imam Ghazali. The Ghazalian books are unique among the writings of correct Sufis in that they are comprehensive, explicit, and greatly effective within a short time. But the first part was his definition of knowledge. It's knowledge that increases us in the knowledge of the essence of Allah, His attributes, His acts, and His blessings. Makes you aware of His commands and His prohibitions. What are we supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be avoiding? Leads you to announce, renounce the things of this world and wish only for the hereafter. There's a type of knowledge. When you study that, as you progress in life, you just want less. And you want to focus more on the hereafter. There's a type of knowledge that helps you do that. And when you read it regularly, the heart, the beautiful thing is, when you put it in the right environment, it grows. But you have to do it. And if you put yourself in that place where you're doing that, you will find the effect. And then, brings your faults, the defects in your acts, and the plots of your enemy to your notice. And so, that the Ihelu Medin is a long book. But when you start to get into the second half, where you start to get into uh, the Muharram al-Lisan, where he talks about the uh, prohibitions of the tongue in great detail, it takes time to learn all of those things. It takes time to learn about all of the different diseases and how to overcome them and so forth and so on. It takes time. It takes years. So this is precisely why that we have to have a regular study of them and this should be the priority. Now, so then number four, he is disinclined to luxury in the things of this world. He is disinclined to luxury to the things of this world. Food, drink, enjoyment of clothes, and embellishment of furnishings and housing, preferring less therein, emulating the early Muslims, and inclining towards the minimum in everything. And so you can see how bad of a job we all do in that. And at very least in our time, in a time where, especially in places like the United States of America, where we tend to have more than most other people in the world, at very least we should be thankful and show gratitude. At very least. And then try to just take small steps in the direction of this. So if we that can't fully live that the way that Imam Ghazali is encouraging us to live, that we should take small steps in that direction. Um, but at very least, and this kind of relates in some ways to the first one, not seeking the world through our religious learning, is that we realize that 
if we are have wearing nice clothing and having a nice car that we drive and things like that, um, there's a better way. The way to live simply is better. And there's this beautiful correspondence that he includes here between that, um, that Yahya bin Yazid and Imam Malik ibn Anas, where it touches upon this point where Imam Malik recognizes uh, and thanks him for his um, nasiha, because Imam Malik wore very nice clothing. And he recognizes that, he says that we do that and we seek the forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I realize not doing this is better than doing it. And so that this is the way that we should be. Um, that if we depart slightly from what Imam Muzadi is saying, we recognize that there's a better way. And were someone to choose a state of zuhud, to live simply, no, I'm just not going to upgrade to that a nicer home. I'm just not going to get a nicer car. Right? It's fine if you do. Be grateful. Right? Just don't go to excess. Excess will definitely be contradictory to what Imam Muzadi is saying. But um, that to not do so is better. And as we get older, we should actually downsize and we should actually go in the opposite direction. Try to have less and less. And then we can even learn this from that studies that people have been doing. How minimalism, which is one way of uh, framing uh, zuhud, detachment, renunciation, it's healthier for us. It's better for your psychological state. It's better that for the state of your heart, there's less clutter. And it's actually that healthier. Number six. Whoops. Number five. He keeps as far from rulers as possible. La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. And that he tries not to associate them if there's associate with them if there's any way that he can avoid them. He says that that he tries to be he's wary of them even if they come to him. He said because the dunya is sweet and green, yani mean pleasant, lush, and that its reins are in the hands of political figures. And the one who that mixes with them is that is rarely free of not doing whatever he can to please them and to say things and do things that make their hearts inclined towards him. So he says, eventually, Mixing with government figures, people that are in positions of power and have money and can support your causes and all these other ways that you could frame it. Miftahun shurur is a key that opens up the door of much evil. And the ulama of the akhirah, the scholars of hereafter, tariqahum and ihtiyat. Their way is one of caution. And um, this is a door that um, you have to be very careful. Because it seems like, oh, if I connect to this particular, then my project will be supported. I can get funding this way. This is how I'm going to get a grant. This is da, da, da. And that might be the case, that you might get what you're looking for. But what do you have to do in order to get that? We have to be very wary. The asal is, the foundation is for these people, avoidance. And it doesn't mean that you don't, that you're antagonistic towards them. No, we should have good relationships. We should have good relationships with local government, with 
are this, you know, with the, with the governor of the state that you live in, with the congressmen, with the senators, with local government. We should have good relationships with them in the sense that they know we're here to help benefit people. And if it relates to some type of service project or giving back to the community, we should be the, at the forefront of that, even without their funding. Right? So that's good. And that, so we're not unnecessarily antagonistic with them, of course. But religious people should be very careful in terms of their interactions. Is that they're principled, they're doing the work that they're doing. They're doing the work and we're politicians to realize the work that we're trying to do, i.e. make people better people that have good hearts, that obviously obeying the law, that's easy, are contributing in a great way to society. They would actually go out of their way to pay us for the work that we're doing. But we don't want that. We want to remain open. We want to remain uh, on our own. Just let us do the work that we're doing. And it's of course going to be in a view, but we're mostly concerned with your own state before Allah, not what you can do for us. And it's important for Muslims, especially in the context of America, to have good relationships. And alhamdulillah, uh, in the community that we live here, uh, the people have done an amazing job with building good relationships with uh, local law enforcement and local politicians and so forth and that helped us do this project right now that we're doing and get permission to do so right but there's a difference between that that and between us seeking a connection with them in order for our project to be furthered and get funded and so forth and so on there's a difference there and so you have to be very careful and the context of Imam Ghazali is slightly different than the context, so I don't want to oversimplify things, and this conversation is detailed. Um, in the previous times when you're living in a Muslim state, some of what he's talking about is a little bit different when we talk about the relationships that we need to establish here. I mean, it, it is definitely going to be different. But that's the balance, is as was stated. Now, then number six. He is reluctant to give formal legal opinions, fatwa. So he says is that if you're ever asked for a fatwa, a question in the religion, and there's a way for you to get out of answering that question, he said, you should. No. And as that one of the scholars said, La adri ilm, saying I don't know is half of knowledge. Saying I don't know is half of knowledge. And that's hard. And so Ibn Omar said that, uh, that he used to say that Can Ibn Omar radiallahu The son of Sayyidina Omar would be asked about ten would be asked ten questions. He would respond to one and he remained silent about nine. And that the earlier fuqaha used to say, La adri adri. I don't know more than they would say I know. And among them, Sufyan al-Thawri, Malik ibn Anas, Ahmad ibn Hamad al-Fudayl ibn Iyad, Wabishim ibn Harith, the great Imams of this religion. They would say that more I don't know than I know. And then one scholar says, I met in this masjid 120 of the companions of the Messenger of Allah. None of them would be asked about a hadith or a fatwa except that he wished that his brother would suffice him of that. That is how the Sahaba were across the board. 
Allahu Akbar. Tarbiyat Rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. That's just how they were. There's four things that they would that uh, push to other people. That imama, wasiya, al-wadiya, wal-futya. So we're going to have to go through these other ones very quickly. We're out of time. He is primarily concerned with knowing the path of the next world and traveling it. In other words, that mujahada and muraqaba. Mujahada and muraqaba. His main concern is his knowledge of the inward and keeping watch over his heart, knowing the path of the next world and traveling it, sincerely hoping to be shown it by combating his ego and spiritual vigilance over himself. Since subduing the ego leads to beholding the divine. Next, he perpetually strives to deepen his inward certitude. This is the our capital in this religion is our certitude. We will only work and do according to our certitude. And as our Prophet said, Sallallahu that certitude is all of faith. So we need to work on that. And then he is somber, subdued, bowed of head, and spare of words. This is how they are because of the awe of their Lord. He's plain in his manner and dress, movements and rest, speech and silence. No one sees him without being reminded of Allah Most High. And uh, they, the Prophet was asked about who the awliya are. And he said, They are the ones whom when they are seen, Allah is remembered. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so this is the way that these people are. They have what is called sakina and waqar. They are tranquil and they are dignified people. He mainly seeks knowledge of spiritual works and what vitiates them, i.e. what ruins them. That he's concerned about what disturbs the heart, what raises baseless misgivings, waswas of the shaitan, and what provokes evil. For preventing evil is the basis of religion. So these people are concerned, okay, I'm acting, but am I doing anything that's nullifying my works? That I want my heart to be in a state of remembrance of Allah Ta'ala. What are the various things that will disturb that? And then they go about remedying it so that their hearts could be in a state of remembrance. And then, number 11, he relies in his branches of learning upon genuine insight. And so he's not just a person who just hears information and then repeats it. He's someone that because of their state is that they take that knowledge that they learn, they combine it with other knowledge that they've learned, that they've studied at the hands of scholars. They have a good state with their Lord and as a result, they have beautiful insights that even people before them might not have had. And then he shuns spurious matters in religion newly begun, muhtathatid umur. And he avoids innovations, bid'ah, and that uh, whatever bid'ah, definitely, if they're the type that are impermissible, and even the type of new matters that some deem to be important. He's 
the people he should follow should really be that early generation. And this is what he says here. As he says that he should have teftish and ahwal al-sahaba. He should look very carefully at the state of the sahaba in their sirah, how they live their lives, their a'mal, what it is that they've done. And try to follow them in that. And make that be the base. And then if they have to do some of these other things that weren't necessarily done by them, they do them with the right intention. But the foundation is they want to closely resemble the Sahaba of Rasulullah. And then do what else is needed, building upon that for their time. Now. Khair, inshallah. Okay, so that's what he mentions about the 12 signs of the scholars of the hereafter. And inshallah ta'ala, this needs to be studied further and to be read over and over again. And to think about how each one of these relates to you and I so that inshallah ta'ala we can put it into practice and to that be those who resemble them. But it also gives us an ability to know who it is that we should study with. Know who it is that we should take from. And that this is necessary for the transmission of this deen to the upcoming generations. The people who are involved in the transmission have to resemble these people. Or at least, if they're not, they're not fooling themselves or other people. They're open about it. And be like, look, I'm your brother. I can only do so much for you. At least be open. Don't fool people. And be like, look, I can help you to here. And after that, you're going to need to go somewhere else. And so we have to have humility. And we don't take everything from everyone. We have to know what knowledge to take from who. And in certain matters, we're just brothers. And someone might have a little bit more knowledge in one area. But then one has to know their limits and point them in the direction that they need to go to that help them in their path. And alhamdulillah, the that realize scholars of this religion, the Arifin Billah, who can help take you to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, are still among us. And they're still here. Alhamdulillah. And the sincere person will find them. They say even at his doorstep. They're still among us. And inshallah ta'ala, may Allah ta'ala fill our hearts in the love with the love of them and to bless us to come to know them and to benefit from them. And inshallah ta'ala, that bring these meanings to life in our own hearts and in the hearts of our family members and the community and Muslims in these lands and Muslims throughout the world. Ya Arhamar Rahmin. May Allah ta'ala, that bless us to really understand what Imam Ghazali is trying to present to us in the book on knowledge and bless it to affect us so that this becomes our perspective on knowledge. This becomes our methodology about how we seek knowledge and go about learning and may inshallah ta'ala this become that rooted in our community and may there be many people who have understood this and to put it into practice that come about in these lands and then benefit people for many many years fi khayr wa afiyah wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen